Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. This morning I'm joined by the boss, uh, my boss, um, John Endress, CEO of the IRR, and I asked him to come on because he has produced a substantial and fascinating, necessary and important report, and it's called the Growth Strategy. It's that simple. John, welcome. Um, thank you, Sarah. Great. Uh, thanks for having me back on. Yeah, no, it's, it's an absolute pleasure. You, you stated at the, at, the, at the beginning of your report that uh, there have been two prominent reform plans, but they really don't cut mustard or whatever the term may be. So we've produced our own. What is their problem and what are we aiming at generally? Okay, I think um, the, the main motivation for writing this report is that I get the very strong sense at the moment in South Africa that we've really lost our sense of ambition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm speaking now spe- specifically about the government, where um, the attitude seems to be that we're stuck with over 30% unemployment on the narrow definition. We're stuck with low growth. Uh, public finances aren't looking too good. And this is the best we can do. We, we've got to live with this. Uh, you know, we... we need to recognize that most people will never find work. They won't be able to sustain themselves by earning an income. So instead, what we must do is just roll out social grants and make them bigger and bigger to help people stay alive. Um, And currently, we're at a level where half of all households in South Africa receive at least one social grant, and 24% of households uh, have social grants as their primary Mm -hmm. source of income. And... You know, you look at this, you, you recognize how important the social grants are and how great the suffering would be if they didn't exist. So, so thank God for them. But the thing is, is this good enough? Mm. And what we are saying is this is not good enough. You know, if you're dependent on a thousand rand from the state per month or 350 rand or whatever other small amounts there are, is this the best we can do? Mm. Is this the best prospect that you've got in your life if you're in that position of receiving those social funds? No. And the point is it's not good enough. Just before, before going, looking at, at what we're proposing, you, you, make, you made the point that it's essentially they've lost energy, call it lack of implementation, whatever yeah. it may be, on the part of the government. But the, the issue that is probably you describe as, I think, more important and that few people consider or know about and that is the underlying ideology. What is the problem with the underlying ideology, and what if what 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 effect does it have on our failure to perform, our failure to grow? Yeah. So we've got an ideology in South Africa. I think that uh, at the most charitable interpretation is very well-meaning. Uh, it's trying to help make things better. But it very much places the government at the center of those efforts. Um, so it is a very centralized view of the world. Um, it sees the government as the enabler of good things, uh, the doer of good things, the alleviator of poverty uh, and, and suffering. But it doesn't realize that in playing this very interventionist role, the government actually limits the space of the private sector to develop better solutions. And that is a kind of the, the mindset shift that we're trying to get here. We also write that many of the proposals we make for higher growth rates are actually not very expensive to implement. Mm-hmm. So it's not a question of having, you know, hugely ambitious um, smart cities and bullet trains and you know, massive infrastructure spending and industrialization plans, et cetera, et cetera. You actually don't need that stuff. What you need to do is get out of the way 
of business, of the private sector, of private citizens who are already in many cases finding solutions but are being hampered by the government. And so that actually is what, what needs to be removed, that obstacle to progress. Uh, just finally on, on, on that aspect, um, what, what, you know me, I, 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 whenever the, ideo- the NC's ideology comes up, I sort of go glassy-eyed and wonder what, I mean, I know what, but uh, you know, it just never, never changes and it seems impervious. And what's interesting is it's impervious to the fact that we are virtually at, at no growth. But um, mm-hmm. countries like Ethiopia, Kenya, pro- all the BRICS, um, even Russia's growing a bit, given even though it's at war, and the v- variety of countries that have just joined the, the uh, have just joined BRICS, uh, which merit discussion at another time on their own. Whatever they are, and some of them are pretty worrisome, so shall we say, on a human rights level. Yeah. My sense is obviously one of the reasons of joining BRICS is so that their economies is, is, is to find a way for their economies to grow more mm-hmm. and to get out into the world more. And yet we are absolutely mired in, 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 in an ideology that was sort of pickled in the 1950s. Yeah, that's right. And if you look at the, you know, some of the, well, let's call it the two biggest BRICS countries, China and India, both of those managed to spark growth off you know, a terribly low base mm. by liberalizing, by deregulating. So mm. in the case of China, it was uh, Deng Xiaoping's reform starting in about 1978 or so, where he said, look, you know, we've been pursuing this very, very centralized approach, the communist approach for many years now. Um, we can see it's not working out very well. So let's liberalize parts of our economy. Uh, let's allow for some private property ownership, for some private enterprise. Let's create some special economic zones along the coast. And of course, exactly those were the regions that grew at these astonishing growth rates since the 1980s and allowed China to become the, the powerhouse mm-hmm. that it is today. A similar thing happened in India. Um, they had something called the license uh, Raj. So everything was regulated. Everything was dominated by the state and entrepreneurial activity was suppressed by this. You didn't get the growth rates that you would have wanted to see. Mm-hmm. And India started liberalizing in the 1990s. Um, they started removing red tape, uh, encouraging private enterprise, and look where they are now. They've mm. got the high growth rates that we aspire to uh, and that we could be having if we followed a similar approach of deregulation and liberalization. So I assume essentially we're looking at a, a, a party that whose survival and access to uh, our resources is, is paramount uh, to them. Going back to the positive, what is our plan? Okay, so our plan, as I said, is not, not terribly expensive. Um, it's also not terribly complicated. And what we do is that we, we do set a stretch goal. Um, and it's, it's part of the reason we're setting a very high growth goal of 7% is that we do want to shake South Africans out of the state of torpor that we're mm. in at the moment, where we think that social grants and a 1% growth rate is good enough. It's not good enough. Mm. But if you want to really have an impact, then you need to push for high growth and you've got to be aggressive about that. A 7% growth rate would mean that the GDP doubles every 10 years. Okay. It also means that our unemployment would come down into the single digits within a decade. That would be like, astonishing. It would be. Uh, it would get us from 32.6% where, where we are at the moment down to 9.9%. So we'd sort of really be aiming <laughs> to get <laughs> below 10% to get that single digit target. Um, but for that, you do have to have the high growth rate. Mm. And it is a stretch goal. Admittedly, we still have energy problems in South Africa. We've got lots and lots of uh, constrictions and restrictions on the economy all over the place. But I think this country can get to that point. Um, and and the, the, the vision I have 
for South Africa is that you create something of an investment frenzy. Mm. You say, you know, you've got investors all over the world looking for the next uh, best place to put their money. Um, and South Africa at the moment really isn't that far up on the list, mm -hmm. even though it's got some things going for it. And it could be far further up the list. Mm. We just got out of our own way and got out of the way of the investors and said, guys, you know, there's a huge opportunity for, for you in South Africa. Put in your money and see it take off. Um, and I'll, I'll take you through some of mm. our recommendations. So we've got four, four categories. Uh, the first one is increased direct investment. So it's a very simple thing. You know, if you want the economy to grow, you need people to put their money into the economy. At the moment, in terms of fixed capital formation, that's the money you put into factories, machinery, infrastructure, heavy equipment. It's a really solid, tangible stuff made of steel and concrete. <laughs> we're sitting at 14% of GDP. That's how much we're spending on that type of investment or, or receiving mm -hmm. or putting into the economy. We should be at about double that rate. Okay. We should be at about 24%. And the government's own national development plan of 2012 aimed for a rate of 30, 30%. So we're far away from that. And the question is, how do we get the investment rates up? How do we encourage investors to see the opportunity mm. and put their money into factories and roads and ports and machinery uh, and, and all those good things? And the very first thing you've got to do to get the investment up is to remove the threats to property rights. Right. So the ANC government you know, has got this really ambiguous relationship with property rights where on the one hand, they're sort of in favor, but on the other hand, they keep picking away and undermining property rights the most famous example of which is expropriation without compensation at the moment. Mm. That is a strategy that is seen by overseas investors as absolutely nuts. Mm. Now, if you're an American investor, you're looking at various markets, wanting where to put your money. The one place you're not going to put it is a place where the government wants to sort of just take away <laughs> land and, and real estate without paying for it. So we've got to move away from undermining property rights and just give them ironclad guarantees, say, you know, your stuff belongs to you. Nobody's going to take it away from you mm. without compensation, no less. Um, and you've, you've got to fix that. And on a related note, um, there's another form of expropriation that, of course, is crime. Mm. So mm, you know, criminals take your stuff without paying for it. Uh, they can take your, your, your life. They can take your property. They can take your freedom. Uh, and that is, that is anathema to growth. If we want to get the investors here, we've got to address the crime problem. Mm. Well, just, just on that, I mean, essentially, the mining industry has been absolutely beset by mafias and um, organized crime groups that, that have caused or re required uh, mining companies to spend huge amounts of money and resources on trying to create, a, create an element of safety for, for, for their staff. Um, and I mean, look, I, I don't think um, my sense from sort of people mining across the world is that's not necessarily insurmountable because a lot of companies mm -hmm. mine in godforsaken places that, that, that have crime. But added to things like expropriation and I would suggest uh, BEE, um, mm -hmm. we, really, we really start to look unattractive. Uh, just comment on the BEE side. Yeah, so I think the, you know, the mining industry is a really good example because it, it, it gets challenged on both sides from the public sector under the Mining and Petroleum Resources Development Act from the early 2000s, which effectively nationalized the mineral resources of South Africa and placed the government in a gatekeeper position to issue mining licenses and exploration licenses. And as a result of this, we're now in a position where South Africa is only the sixth uh, uh, ranked uh, jurisdiction for mining investment not just in the world, but in Africa. Oh, so, okay. you know, you're speaking about difficult mining environments, you know, mining in the DRC, <laughs> I think, is a lot more challenging than South Africa. But still, we but are it's in certain. Africa. 
you, you, you can deal with the certainty, even if it's not so, not so good. Um, exactly. Sorry, I'm just going to go back a little bit because it's, it's suddenly so, something struck me. Um, it's, South Africa seems to have taken a very anti-West position, both in the treaties it has with, uh, on, on the business side and seeking, avoid, pretty much avoiding the West and very distinctly going to the East. And the problem is that most of the developing countries, including China, including Russia, uh, not in Russia, sorry, China and India, are not yeah. avoiding. I mean, generally, what makes them strong is those relationships with the West, uh, however fra- fraught they may be at times. It's that, that very, very connectedness. And, and South Africa just doesn't seem to get it. Mm. And I think there's also great irony here, which is that when you survey ordinary South Africans and you ask them, uh, you know, would, would you rather emigrate to China, Russia, the UK or the US? <laughs> response across all population groups is like 80, 90%. I'd much rather go to the UK or the US. Mm. So broadly, the populace is Western-aligned. You know, mm. they, they, that's actually where they want to live. That's what they emulate. That's what they want the country to look like and their lives to look like. But the political elite is looking the other way, as mm. you say. They're looking towards China, towards Russia, for ideological reasons, historical reasons. Uh, and that really puts them out of step with the people of South Africa. Yeah. Um, I also think that their commitment maybe is not quite as profound as, as it may appear. Yeah, yeah. I think that even many, many of the politicians would much rather live in the US or the UK <laughs> than yeah. in Cuba or, or, you know, Iran <laughs> or Syria. Yeah. No, I think, I think that, I think that that's really right. I mean, I can almost see the cartoon with, with sort of government ministers facing the East and the population of South Africa pretty much facing, facing the West. And I think the essence of it is, what they do offer that the East may not is freedom. Yes. And it is freedom that I think you make the point that it's freedom in every aspect of your life that gives you the opportunity to contribute to that growth that the entire, that the entire country has to see. I, I just want, let me go back and ask you about uh, uh, black economic empowerment because it's, it's a it's a hot topic at the moment. A lot of criticism, including particularly from us. Um, what and 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 I understand, but perhaps you could flesh out for me. Uh, a lot of foreign investors, their two their their two big disincentives are EWC and BEE. Hmm. Um, why is BEE a problem for these big corporate entities who can sort of come in and change our world? Yeah, I think that there's two reasons. So, you know, multinational investors are, are used to dealing with owner's regulation in lots of markets around the world. And BE is one, one form of regulation which is like that. I think what they don't really appreciate is firstly the moving goalposts. So, um, the BE rules look like they keep, like they keep changing. It's hard to know what you've got to do as a foreign investor to, uh, to comply. And secondly, there's also this nexus between BE and corruption. Um, so you see um, cater-deployed middlemen being interposed in value chains and uh, maybe also politically connected people being placed on your board as an, as an empowerment uh, partner or director who are then often uh, involved in other corrupt activities. Mm, mm. So you, you're, you're creating a risk for yourself by engaging in these BE deals. Mm. And investors don't like this uncertainty. I think they would much prefer, you know, that if you could just put a number on it, you'd say, you know, you'll have to pay 4% extra tax or whatever the number is. 
okay, mm. they sort of budget for it. They do their, their sums. They see what the rate of return is. Mm. They see if they can afford 4% extra. And if they can, they invest. And, you know, that's it's out of the way. Mm. But this uncertainty about who you're working with, what you need to do, whether the rules are going to change on you, that really keeps them away. Mm. They don't appreciate that. Mm. Um, you mentioned, and we've discussed it a lot in a, within the RR, is the fact that BEE, our position is that BEE does nothing and probably harms the vast majority of South Africans. Yes. Um, we know that it, it benefits the elite because they have the access and they can do all the things you've just mentioned. I mean, they can create the middlemen, they can do a range of things by virtue of their, of their exalted status. How does it harm, harm the majority of South Africans? Right. And so we, we, we think that about 15% of South Africa's black population benefits from BE. But uh, by deduction, it means that 85% of the population does not benefit from it. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing is that the intention of these policies was to create more black employment. But as a matter of fact, we've got more black unemployment now than we did before BE was introduced. Mm-hmm. The intention was to reduce inequality. But as a, a matter of fact, we've got more inequality within the black population group now than we did have before BE mm-hmm. was introduced. The goal was to reduce poverty. We've got more poverty now than before. So on all these counts, this policy isn't working the way it's meant to. Plus, if you're a pro-South African, you are exposed to SOEs and government departments that are fully transformed and that are under-delivering terribly. They're suffering from inflated prices, uh, from bad appointments, uh, and you are subjected to uh, bad police services, bad education service, bad health services, uh, dirty water supply, electricity that doesn't stay on. And all of this is linked to this entire nexus of, of BE, preferential procurement, cater deployment, mm. that's leading to really bad outcomes. And of course, huge levels of, uh, um, huge levels of corruption uh, eventually sort of eat away and gnaw at the society and it, it becomes uh, in- increasingly difficult to, to, to grow because so much, of it, so much of the resources are being diverted by people who have uh, political power. Hang on with me, John. We'll... Come back after the after the break. Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. Uh, John, uh, this report is is exhaustive, so I'm going to just carry on picking up odd pieces that uh, that uh, came you know became came to to my mind. And the one is the part of what the strategy that, that that we want to propose is that recruitment into the public service would be based on merit. Good grief. Merit. I mean, I thought, you know, surely merit is the thing. Apparently not. Well, I mean, we've, we've heard some people in government even saying the same thing, you know, that it's time to professionalize the, the civil service, um, which, of course, it must be. Uh, for that, you do need merit-based appointments. But you also need to move away from cadre deployment. Mm. And that seems to be a step that the government hasn't quite uh, been able to take yet. Uh, they're still trying to square the circle by um, recruiting capable cadres. But the thing is that inevitably, if you pursue the strategy, you are politicizing the public administration uh, with the terrible effects that we're seeing in many parts of the country. Um, here in Johannesburg, for example, um, the administration, I think, is hopelessly politicized, and it's very difficult to get it to perform at anywhere near the level where it needs to perform. But yes, a capable civil service would be a very useful thing. Um, and failing that, a much smaller civil service that isn't so expensive uh, would also be acceptable, I guess. And then you talk about uh, amending the laws that currently govern strikes. 
this is an area I used to have a lot of practice in. Uh, what would you have in mind that would make a difference? Well, we, we are proposing that there should be secret uh, strike ballots. In other words, when a union decides to go on strike, it needs to get a mandate from its members. That mandate, mandate should be based on, on a, a secret ballot. In other words, uh, your, bosses, your, your union bosses don't see whether you voted in favor or against the strike. We also think that strikes of long duration uh, should be forced to go back to the members to get a mandate mm. for prolongation. Um, so there should be a, a time limit uh, that expires on a strike mandate um, after a certain time. Mm. And thirdly, what we propose is that unions be held liable for damage that they cause during strikes. We've seen some very violent strikes in mm. South Africa with a lot of damage to property um, and some people being killed as well. And it seems that the unions uh, utterly evade any culpability for that, yeah. uh, which really needs to be changed because they need to keep their members in control yeah. um, if they're going on strike. They can't allow this sort of thing to go on. Well, the thing is, even if, if they can't control their members, uh, they, are, they are responsible for their members. They are meant to control their members. And uh, they can't simply say, well, it wasn't us, it's sort of a third force, mm. you know, which they, which they always, always do. Just to make a, 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 perhaps an interesting little historical point is before 1994, stri- um, ballots were mandatory, they were in secret, and they were held at the company. So the mm-hmm. the the, um, go, the management wouldn't uh, partake, but, but they were, could observe. Mm-hmm. And yeah. things, did, you know, in the relationship with Kasatu, things uh, kind of uh, were chosen to unravel, and so and so they did. With regard, and this is quite quite important because it's something you often hear, particularly medium and small business complaining about because they don't have the uh, resources, is changing the rules regarding dismissals and retrenchment. Mm. Yeah, here the thought is that we are sitting with uh, 32.6 unemployment on the official definition. That's 8 million people without jobs in South Africa. Youth unemployment is even higher, um, up to 70%, depending on which definition you use. And that is such an insane level. Um, that you really have to remove every single obstacle that stands in the way of companies giving somebody a chance uh, to take a job. And at the moment, companies, you know, if, if they need somebody on a temporary basis, they're going to think twice about, you know, bringing somebody in because what if they have to take them on the payroll and then can't, you know, let them go when demand is down or if they're not performing. So you see this reluctance amongst employers about uh, pe- taking people on board, giving them a chance, seeing if they work out or not. And that reluctance really should be uh, reduced. And employers should be encouraged to take a chance on people, say, you know, I can see uh, you haven't had much experience, maybe you're just out of school, or you've been out of work for a while. Um, but yeah, you know, why don't you come in, show me what you can do. And if it works out, you know, I'll be so happy to mm-hmm. have found you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think many employers are actually keen mm-hmm. to find good staff. Um, and if they if they can identify people on the job, who are suitable, they would very much like mm, to keep them. Mm. Um, so it's not really a question of, you know, wanting to bring people in and fire them willy-nilly all the time. Right. But you need to make it easy to to take uh, the, take the chance and give the opportunity. Um, for some reason, oh, well, I couldn't imagine, but it doesn't make any sense. The union movement has tended to say this will be detrimental to our members. Um, um, I'm not entirely sure I understand that because by law, you know, you can't negatively affect existing conditions of employment unless you run out of money and you have to close the, the, the organization. Um, and also, you can't just retrench people because you've got young, cheap labor in. You, it, it, the mm. Last in, first out is, is still a, a, a dictum by which you have to determine, or not have to, but 
all else failing, you, 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 you decide how to retrench and who to retrench. So there's no, there's been no change in the, or there would be no change in the rights that existing employees have. So I'm not quite sure whether it's disingenuous, um, or because uh, theoretically, and, and this is something that really amuses me about the sort of anti-capitalist thing, the union movement, the, the, the union movement outside of pre- uh, protecting government workers has dropped dramatically. Mm. And I would have thought that all these liberalizations offer the best possible way to gain new membership. But clearly mm. I'm, I'm not looking at it in the right way. As the unions would say. <laughs> well, I think you are looking at it exactly the right way. Um, and, and one useful big picture way of looking at this is that our labor and other regulation in the business sector is leading to the very substantial growth of the informal sector. Yeah. And in the informal sector, as a union, you've got no recruiting potential. You know, there's, there's no unionization. There's no labor rules. You know, people just make their own arrangements. So effectively, the informal market This is where deregulation is happening. Mm. This is where liberalization is happening. This is where direct contracting between employers and employees is happening, all outside of the scope of influence Mm. of the unions. So for the unions, uh, you know, it should be in their interest to say, well, we actually need more people in the formal sector Mm. where we do have a role to play than in the informal sector we've got no nothing to say at all. Mm. Um, And that is a a reason to deregulate, liberalize, so that more people are able to work in the formal sector subject to, you know, uh, uh, minimum standards of employment, uh, conditions mm-hmm. of employment, rather than in the informal sector where there are no rules at all. Now, it's sort of allied to what you're saying is that you've identified as areas of major potential for, for markets and employment is agriculture and tourism. And the reason I want to put you on tourism is because the beauty about tourism, well, tourism was Devastated by COVID and aggravated by the government in, in many ways. But the thing about tourism is it's the one sector the government cannot control. It's, 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 it is, it's very individualistic and let, if 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 they have space, the the ability for small hotels, small B&Bs, ranches, ranches, uh, um, wild, you know, wild animal, uh, Tourism is is available in a way that the the government just cannot ch- chase after these individuals and sort of take them over. Um, mm. it, it's 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 obvious why why has why has the government been so sort of obstructive and yet unhelpful at the same time? <laughs> yeah, I mean we, we we so there's what what might be a seeming contradiction in our paper which is where you write that the government shouldn't pick winners. Mm. In other words, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of hard to say which way economic demand goes. You can't really predict it. And if you're the government, you say, you know, it's, it's going to go in the direction of cars or, you know, whatever product. And you try to subsidize uh, and also protect industries in that sector. More often than not, it, it just ends up being an expensive failure. Mm. So the government should actually step step back and say, okay, we're not going to pick winners. Um, we'll sort of let the market figure out what goes where. But... In South Africa's situation where unemployment is so high, um, and we do have a very large number of unskilled people as well, haven't had job experience, haven't had training, you do need to look at the sector specifically, I think, that generate uh, lots of opportunities for that kind of labor. And here, tourism, as you say, is one of those sectors. Mm. What we write is that there's 
lots of potential to expand tourism far beyond where it is already. Mm. Um, for example, there are very beautiful parts of our country that are not accessible really mm. uh, because of poor infrastructure. Mm, mm. Um, if you take the Eastern okay. Cape, for example, um, or if you take uh, parts of the Karoo, it's you know, really hard to get to places. Mm. Um, but those are spectacularly mm. beautiful places that most people don't know about, very distinctive that we think overseas tourists would be interested in. Mm. And then we also recommend looking at specialized forms of tourism. So rather than just making it you know, holiday tourism, um, people are interested in, in archaeology, mm. you know, so mm. why not say, OK, let's let's focus on our archaeological resources sure. or photography uh, tourism or medical mm. tourism. Birds. In all of these areas, we've got distinctive advantages. And mm. We should be using them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, John, I'm going we gone beyond our time and uh, as I said I could I'm sort of dipping into your report and sort of jumping and hopping and skipping but people can read the whole report just by going to our website irr.org.za and clicking on, on publications and it's it's at the top so it's it's free you can you can uh, indulge and I think uh, I'd highly recommend you do John thank you very much for joining us thank you very much Sarah good to be on the show with you thank you